This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I can only apologise to Hannah and Jen and you dear listeners because I had a curry for my tea last night, then an egg for breakfast and so my arse is at like sort of Tory government levels of confusions. Anything could happen. Christ. That's my scared face. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I wish that just once I would get to feed the cats out of the handy zipper in the bag rather than the hole they've chewed through the side of it. They won't be put into your boxes, Hannah. And I'm Jen Offord and I want my aloe vera plant to piss or get off the pot. Well, I mean, what's it doing? Is it not aloe in or vera it enough? It doesn't know. It doesn't know if it's dead or alive. It is somewhere in the hinterland of aloe like vera Like Keith plants. Richards? <laughs> sort of, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's actually pretty much what it looks like. <laughs> Later on, I chat with journalist and author Lisa Tadeo about her remarkable new book, Three Women, which is about female desire and, for reasons you'll discover, took her 10 years to write. We talked to poet and playwright Marika McKennell about her work in pupil referral units and her new play, E8. In Journey of the Blocks, I'm chatting to Caroline Former, badass cyclist and member of the Donon Does El Ovello. Lovely pronunciation there. That was classic French. Mm. Yeah. And in Dunleavy Does Dystopia, we do Terminator 2, which, having now watched, I realise isn't a dystopia, but fuck it. There's a guy in it called Dyson, and he gets blamed for ruining the world, so it seems topical. There are dystopian elements, I would argue, but we'll talk about that later. Because first, suing the government, bashing the metaphors, and doing the maths. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we'd just like to say well done to whoever it is that spray-painted Boris's a coked-up <laughs> pervert on a bridge over the M4. Tremendous skills. Okay, quick recap. I know we have wanged on about this a lot, but despite being part of the UK, the women of Northern Ireland have no access to safe, free and legal abortion. Yes, they can fly over here and access the NHS, but the flying over here bit is prohibitive for way too many women. It's a situation which Westminster could change in a jiffy, but gets the collywobbles about because the government, well, one, is currently redefining the word farcical, and two, is all squirty-bummed about annoying the DUP. But Stormont, they whine, despite the fact Stormont has not sat for more than two years. Props to the ever-excellent London Irish abortion rights campaign then, which has marched, protested, chanted and written to MPs, and has now decided to take our lily-livered government to court. Yep, that's right, Westminster is about to face a landmark legal case for its failure to change the law on abortion in Northern Ireland. London Irish ARC first set a crowdfunding target of 10 grand to cover the government's legal fees should the government win. But it smashed that in 36 hours, so raised the target to 15 grand, with that extra five covering London Irish ARC's own court and admin fees. Smashed that in another 12 hours. 
Any money not used will go straight to the awesome abortion support network. So if you still fancy giving, and I have, then visit www.crowdjustice.com forward slash case forward slash now for NI forward slash. And obviously we'll keep you posted on what happens next. But bravo London Irish ARC. Is that your belly? <laughs> I warned you. <laughs> oh, and at the same time, Labour MP Stella Creasy is once more tabling an amendment arguing that the government is obliged to extend access to abortion to Northern Ireland in order to comply with human rights obligations. She's relentless and we tip our hat to her for it. It wasn't my belly, by the way. I think it was the aircon. I think. She says. I think. Talking of unpleasant rumblings, Brexit <laughs> MEP Anne Widdicombe, former cabinet minister, shit dancer and sentient letter to the Daily Mail, caused a stir in the European Parliament last week when in her maiden speech she compared Brexit to slaves rising up against their masters. Oh, God. If you take aside the fact that Widdicombe was elected to her position and is being paid handsomely to be there, it shows a tragic misrepresentation of what slavery actually was. MP David Lammy called the speech ahistorical, Although, given it was willfully so, a whole historical might be close <laughs> to the mark. A Brexit party spokesman strung together a surprisingly long sentence in defence of the party's new star MEP. And I quote, Those who have raised this hue and cry... God, they're really up with the common verbiage, aren't they? Weren't they an 80s band? What are they doing back? <laughs> Those who have raised this hue and cry seem to desire nothing more than a cleansing of our language, of historical perspective and even metaphor. Oh, it was a metaphor. Oh, honey. That clears that up. The party had earlier publicly masturbated furiously, metaphorically of course, by turning their backs to the playing of Ode to Joy. As the new intake of MEPs arrived, Lib Dems wore T-shirts with the slogan Bollocks to Brexit, while Brexit party members wore T-shirts with the slogan We are a bunch of money-grubbing cunts. Metaphorically, of course. Just on a Brexit note, this quick news flash. The public should be worried about a no-deal Brexit. Who's saying this? Well, us, consistently, forever. But also Philip Rycroft, the former top civil servant at the Department for Exiting the European Union, who we're willing to admit has a few more credentials on the matter than we do. In his first interview since retiring three months ago, Rycroft, former permanent secretary at the Department for Exiting the European Union, said... I think everybody should be worried about what happens in a no-deal situation. We will be taking a step into the unknown. So, while Boris channels Lance Corporal Chat Jones... Oh, that's army. Do you remember when Britain was great, lads? It seems panic is absolutely the way forward. Officially. So, remember when we were chatting about imposter syndrome on the podcast last year? Hannah got cured. It didn't yeah, last very yeah, long, no. though. Well, I've got, I've got a new technique for you, Hannah, if you're uh, struggling with any feelings of inadequacy. Thanks to a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne. I'm not hopeful. No? <laughs> so, listeners, if you're wondering if that Tinder profile is too hot, not sure how to ask for a pay rise, don't think you're well qualified enough for the job. I mean, I just asked myself, what would Gideon do? <laughs> She's well, got a little band around her wrist at WWGD. <laughs> Well, he'd uh, indicate his interest uh, in running the International Monetary Fund, despite being in no way qualified to do so. Presumably he's got a bit of time on his hands as editor of the Evening Standard, a job which he is in no way qualified. Yeah. All right, yeah, he was the Chancellor, which he was in no way qualified to be, having never studied economics or indeed held a job in that area. 2-1 in modern history, if you're interested, and he walked straight into a job in the Conservative Party. Also, the economy. 
didn't go that well, did it? You know, that austerity policy described by Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell as the architect of the slowest recovery from a recession since Napoleonic times. Oh, Georgie boy. Yeah. Oh, the confidence of a privately educated white man. No bones about it. The following story, brilliantly reported by Geeta Pandey for the BBC, is horrific. In India's western state of Maharashtra, it has been revealed by Indian media that in the past three years, thousands of young women have undergone surgery to remove their wombs. And in a lot of these cases, the reason they've made these long-term, irreversible choices that impact their lives and health is so they can work as sugarcane harvesters. I mean, I'm sure we've all gone above and beyond to get a job we really want, but this seems barbaric. Because it is. Basically, contractors are reluctant to hire women because cane cutting is hard work. Women may miss a day or two when they're on their periods. And by the way, they get a penalty fine for that. Also, hygiene standards are piss poor, meaning menstruation can quite often lead to infection. And because unscrupulous doctors don't mention the problems a hysterectomy can cause, women as young as their mid-20s are being sold the idea that it's okay to get rid of their wombs. There's a lot being done to combat India's archaic ideas that menstruating women are impure, which means they're still excluded from social and religious events. But clearly, there is still a vast way to go. Big news last week as it was announced that Halle Bailey of Chloe and Halle and Beyonce Horcrocks fame has been cast as Ariel in Disney's live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. Hang on, isn't Halle black? And wasn't Ariel a ginger-haired white lass? That's right, the people of Twitter were getting their knickers in a right old twist about this development and even started their own hashtag, NotMyAriel. That's right, guys, about a 19-year-old girl. <laughs> Hmm. Which is lovely, isn't it? It's not because they're racist, though. And I quote, it's about the actress chosen not looking like the Little Mermaid everyone knows and loves in their minds. In their minds. (laughs) (laughs) All right, at Paninio, yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, I hear you. No, you're absolutely right. It's not very realistic casting of a mermaid, is it? I don't know, given where she lives in the tropics. Oh, well. I will give the final word to at Alina More Human who tweeted the best response to the haters that I'd seen. If you're upset about The Little Mermaid not being white anymore, I have bad news for you about Jesus. Is it that he doesn't exist? I don't know. He actually died on an octagon, not a cross. (laughs) Everybody enjoy Independence Day? And by that I mean see Trump's rain-drenched speech in which he talks about airports during the Revolutionary War. That's what was so revolutionary about it. Absolutely. I've got to say, my absolute favourite part of Hamilton is when Lafayette commandeers Spitfire and bombs the shit out of Yorktown. Alexander Hamilton, we are waiting in the baggage claim area for you. Trump's efforts were variously called seventh grade, like a Wikipedia page (laughs) and very basic, and that was just from the people who had to restrict what they were saying because they were on the telly. Trump's salute to America had a decidedly military tone and he called on the young people of the country to sign up for the forces just like he always. And he also promised to plant an American flag on Mars, which I fully support, especially if he's offering to do it himself. Meanwhile, the Iranian government were doing their level best to piss off everyone again last week after they deported soul singer Joss Stone. Remember her? Just about. Yeah. Uh, She of Mega Voice and Incongruous News Stories fame was sent packing from the final country she was visiting as part of a five-year, 200-stop tour because, according to Iran's state broadcaster, she didn't have the right documentation. However... 
Stone acknowledged that women are not allowed to perform solo concerts in Iran and added, the authorities didn't believe we wouldn't be playing a show, so they've popped us on what they call a blacklist. Now, I can understand their confusion here. I also like the terminology of, I've just popped you on the blacklist. (laughs) Just just going to pop you on that. (laughs) Just popping you on the blacklist. It does sound like, it's a very benign way of saying Uh you're being deported. (laughs) I'm just going to pop you on a plane and send you home, if that's okay. Just, just, just pop on that plane. <laughs> I'm just going to pop you to Guantanamo Bay. Anybody want some good news? Yes, please. And some good news from Twitter, I no less. I do not believe There you. has never been such times. Well, maybe there were, but like it was 2009 or some such, the glory days. This weekend, Deborah Price tweeted about a dress she was searching for. The black t-shirt dress with a red heart was originally from Next and is the only item of clothing her friend's autistic daughter will wear. And despite stocking up, she had now outgrown the last dress, leaving them with a huge problem, given that Next doesn't sell them anymore. People immediately leapt into action, offering to scout charity shops and jumble sales, with many offering to make a replica dress. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? But the problem was that, however... As with many people with autism, it's not just about how the dress looks, but how the dress feels. Mm-hmm. So it would need to be made from exactly the same material. But fear not, in steps next, offering to contact the supplier and put in an order for several new dresses in different sizes. It's not often I've got much positive to say about women's clothes shops, but really, well done next. That is, oh, that's, that is that's heartwarming. Mm. Isn't it? Yeah. I don't know what to do with that sensation anymore. <laughs> <laughs> More news I'm next week. <laughs> Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we wave goodbye to the hashtag not all men. Yep, that's right. The beloved method of men making a conversation that isn't about them into a conversation about them might be a thing of the past. Alas, not because it's a nonsense whataboutery that derails important conversations, but because it seems not even the Dalai Lama is averse to a spot of sexism. So perhaps, you know, it really is all men. It isn't, obviously. And I'll say that again for the Jeb ends at the back. Obviously. But His Holiness found himself, and I really detest this term, but cancelled by the internet when, in a recent BBC interview, he reiterated remarks made in 2015 about a potential female successor, saying, If female Dalai Lama comes, then that female must be very attractive. Otherwise, not much use. Which is fair enough because he has, without a doubt, got by on being a smoking hot stallion. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm going straight back to the Catholics as soon as they get a hot pope. (laughs) Yeah, right? Wow. So, yeah, the take home from this is that even though Big Johnny Lama has now sort of apologised, apparently he didn't mean to cause any offence, which isn't the same as saying he didn't mean to judge women purely on looks. Even the fecking Dalai Lama thinks women are only as worthwhile as we're hot. Hashtag not all llamas. (laughs) <laughs> I used to live in a place called Jindabyne in Australia. It's a really interesting place. It had a llama farm and it was misspelled. It was spelled L-A-M-A, mm-hmm. like the Dalai Lama farm. And it used to make me laugh all the time. Maybe they've grown a less sexist Dalai yeah, Lama. careful they spit. Hi, Hannah here, just popping in to tell you that on Friday we will be releasing July's Outside the Box. Ooh. Ooh. When Mick, that was Mick, Jen and I will be talking about what we do in the shadows, Year of the Rabbit, Stranger Things, The Last Sars, Waco and the new Louis Theroux documentary. That's a lot to cram in. That will be out on Friday. If you press subscribe, then it will be waiting for you. Weekend telly. Sorted. 
Hello, I am joined by journalist and author Lisa Tadeo, currently visiting the UK from the States. Hey Lisa. Hey, how are you Mickey? All right, thanks. Thanks very much for coming in. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's been a bit of a whirlwind tour. You're just doing loads and loads of press for your book, Three Women. It has, and it's been lovely and definitely exhausting, but it's been quite lovely. Have you had any time to get to grips with UK politics? Can you help us out at all? No, I can't, actually. I, don't, I haven't had the time, but perhaps if I had some more time, I would have some more opinions. We're looking for answers anywhere. <laughs> okay. Please help. Okay. So your latest book, Three Women, has had me gripped. It got to me on Tuesday, and despite having just moved house, I barely put it down, much to the chagrin of the cats. <laughs> uh, it is an in-depth journalistic account of the defining sexual relationships in three women's lives, that is, Maggie... Lena and Sloane. Mm-hmm. So why did you write it? I had read Gay to Lisa's Thy Neighbor's Wife, which was a book about desire and sexuality that was written back in the late 70s and early 80s. And the journalist, Mr. Tlese, who is now 85, I think, had immersed himself for a decade in sexuality. He had lived at a swingers colony and operated a massage parlor with happy endings. I was very admiring of the book because of its immersiveness, but I was reading about all these sex acts that were very interesting, you know, the threesomes and the large group orgies. I was like super, you know, I was like, I want to read more. This is great. But I was finding myself wondering what the people were feeling during and after the sex. And there wasn't so much feeling. It was more just like, you know, like eroticism, which was great, but it was just felt like a very male book. So I was thinking about exploring desire from a female perspective. Mm-hmm. How did you go about writing the book? Because you really threw yourself into it. I did. I didn't throw myself into it quite as much as Mr. Talese did. No happy endings. Um, no, 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 none of those. But I began by driving across the country six times. I was posting signs up looking for people who had compelling stories of desire, but I also didn't know what I was looking for. I had multiple different plans, like I was going to look for families, I was going to look for a whole town where I was going to follow out different people in the town, like the mayor and a mom, and just a million different things. So I drove across the country looking for towns and families and people. And so, yeah, I mean, I I didn't know what I wanted, and then... I moved out of New York City into Indiana just kind of on a little bit of a whim because I had to get out of my worldview Mm -hmm. in New York. I was with my friends. I was hanging out. I was going and taking trips to various places. But since I didn't know what the hell I was doing, I was like, I have to at least get out of New York. So I moved to rural Indiana. And I started a discussion group there where I'd met a doctor near the Kinsey Institute, which is, you know, the Alfred Kinsey, the sort of, you know, father of... of I was going to call him sex investigator. Yes, quite the... And sex... Yes, a sex a lot of thing, Ader. And... um, (laughs) And so I started this discussion group for, like, women because there were a group of women that this doctor was giving these hormone treatments to, and they started losing weight, and they started feeling newly sexual in their bodies. I was drawn to this one woman named Lena, who was the suburban housewife in Indiana, 
because she walked in there and the first thing she said was, if my husband doesn't touch me, you know, I've waited three months. If my husband doesn't touch me at the end of the three months, I'm going to leave him. Even though she came from a very traditional Catholic background Mm -hmm. where divorce, infidelity was not okay. And the second thing she said a couple of days later was that she was going to, she was about to embark on this illicit relationship with her high school lover who had always been the love of her life. And I just thought that the immediacy of her story unfolding before me was so wonderful in the sense that she was really finding herself and wanting to talk about it in a way that very few people I'd found did. She wanted someone to listen. I wanted someone to talk. So it was kind of a perfect storm. And then after that, I was like, fuck, you know, because <laughs> I handed it into my editor. He said, perfect, do this a couple of more times. And I was, I'd already, you know, it had been three and a half years of my life by that point. And I was like, can we just make it one woman? Um, but <laughs> With that voice, you know, with that low blood sugar yes, voice. Yes, I'm so tired. Exactly. I was so tired. And again, I didn't know what I was going to do next, you know, so it was kind of like starting from scratch again. So with Maggie, Lena, and Sloan, and the Mm -hmm. names have all been changed, is that right? Not Maggie's. Not Maggie's. Correct. Because obviously her story is very much in the public domain. But with Maggie, Lena, and Sloan, was it more that the women found you than you found the women? Yes, and you know, that's the way I've put it before, and it's so absolutely true, because even though I was looking for people, there were people who wanted to talk to me, a lot of people, but it was for this reason that didn't feel organic. It was like men wanted to sort of put their egos out on the table and just go like, and then I did this and then I did that. And some women didn't have the right, I don't know, I was looking for something like someone who didn't want to, you know, shout their story from the rooftops, but also were going to be supremely honest and raw. And that was an impossible intersection. And I found these three people or they found me, they found me in the sense that they told me their stories more than anybody else of all the hundreds of people I spoke to did. And so, yes, so you're totally, that's the way that I've put it a million times is that they found me as much as I found them. So when you were looking or waiting to be found, did you follow quite a few dead ends? Because it is so intricate and like people will tell you stuff to a point and then possibly close up because it is so intimate. Totally. I lost multiple people to that, to the sort of fear of You kind of made it sound like you killed them. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I know. Well, they, I mean, they killed themselves in front of me in a sense because I had spent, I mean, I moved to one place for two different people and it was six months of both people and they both, well, one, the man, I kind of, I dropped him because he became a little bit, I don't know, he became rote. He just stopped being interesting to me. And the woman, she said, I can't do this anymore because she mm-hmm. had met someone and who actually mattered to her. And so she couldn't, by that point I was telling people I wouldn't, I wasn't going to use their names because I started off like, because gay police told me I'd be a hack if I didn't use people's names. So of course he wrote his book in the pre-internet age. And so <laughs> I wasn't using their names, but some people just, you know, you don't want your story to meet oxygen sometimes because it just is frightening. Yeah, like, it's, it's like it's, it hit in a fire. Yeah, exactly. You just, like, don't. If it's something very private and you tell it and you're worried about the person being able to change enough details or, you know, there's that fear that no matter what happens that you could get discovered and your innermost feelings could get discovered that's almost exactly what happens to maggie not when she talks to you but when she shares her story with the public could you give us a little rundown about the three women and can we start with maggie so maggie i was in a cafe in um medora north dakota when i read about her story in a local newspaper 
what had happened was that she had brought charges against her teacher who had gone on to become North Dakota's Teacher of the Year. But when she was in high school, they had an alleged consensual relationship. But the aftermath of the relationship and the way that it kind of ended was very... It it really wrecked her life. Yeah. And he went on to become Teacher of the Year. So it was a very... The sort of polarizing end of their alleged relationship was a big deal. And there was this trial... Because it's worth pointing out that in North Dakota, the age of consent is 18. Obviously, it's 16 in the UK. She was 15 when it kind of, when they met, but then 17 was when they began having... uh, Well, they never had actual intercourse, which was another part of the story that I found fascinating. Because if she had been lying, you know, if she had just... Why would you not? Like, why would you stop before intercourse? Yeah. And not say that if you were trying to bring somebody down, why would you not say that aspect? Like, why would you just use, you know, the oral sex and stuff like that and fingering? It was these specifics that I thought were so wildly important that people weren't really talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the nuance of it was so... I was just so... I was entranced and also horrified by what had happened. Yeah, it's a really disturbing read. Mm-hmm. Maggie's story, I think because it happened so often and you see it in the news, mm-hmm. is the one that gripped me the most, just hearing her side of it mm-hmm. properly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fascinating and just appalling. I feel so sad for her mm-hmm. and her family and everyone it affected. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about Lena? So Lena, who I met in the discussion group, had been raped as a young woman by three different boys in the at the same time and then was in a passionless marriage for over a decade when i met her beyond the fact that her husband hadn't touched her in 3 months she also had just come from a couples therapist and you know her husband said i don't want to kiss you on the mouth the sensation offends me oh that is oh i know so heartbreaking. and the couples therapist said that's okay the way that you feel about wet wool is the way your husband feels about kissing you on the mouth that was so horrifying to hear yeah i mean so she embarks upon this relationship with aiden her high school lover she just begins to find herself in these moments and you know, the main thing that I was intrigued by is when she came in and said, my husband doesn't want to kiss me, I'm going to leave him. Everybody was like, you're okay, don't worry. And they were patting her on the back. And then when she came in, like, the next time or the third time, she said, I'm about to have this affair. And they were all, the judgment across the room was shocking. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't kind of think about infidelity in a certain way, but, you know, I also don't think it's people's places to judge another, mm-hmm. unless it's you who's, you know, getting cheated on. I think that... It's not, you know, it's just not their place to judge, but even more so than my opinion about that, I was really struck by it. I wanted to look at that and why we do that. And then we've got Sloane, who again, Mm -hmm. I think, encounters quite a lot of judgment. Well, all of the women in the book do. Tell us a bit about Sloane. So I found Sloane after moving to her town for several other people, actually. But when I got there, I was I kept hearing about this gorgeous woman whose husband liked to watch her have sex with other people. But the first rumor I heard was not even that, but it was that her husband also wanted to have sex every day. And not only did she allow it, but she liked it. And this was like this, you know, can you believe this 
savage thing. And what women are allowed to like sex. That was the thing. It was like, well, it wasn't even liking sex. It was liking sex with your husband. <laughs> that was, you know. Well, yeah, because one of the women says to Lena, well, of yeah. course it's horrible, it was, darling. Yes, You're that's married. Exactly. I think whenever a woman's in thrall, and there's a sense of passion that she's that she's demonized in a way because people are other women are jealous of it, whereas men kind of lean in and go. Although I find other men are jealous too if it's not them. You know, in a room of women and men, men can say she's hot about a woman, but if a woman does that, it's very off-putting. People don't know how to deal with that. So I often do that just to level the playing field. A room full of men, I'll be like, oh my God, that guy's so hot. And you can just see the men kind of shrivel up at it because they're not used to it. Whereas women kind of have to sit there and go, yeah, she is hot. Otherwise, if you don't do that, you are, you know, you're, you're, you're pathetic. You're you a are, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't think that people like to see women's passion. I think that's why we have the rise of the incels, you know. Oh, absolutely. Like, so, obviously, I think you've written the book now because you've finished the book and it's clearly been so long coming, but the right. timing of it is incredible. It is. It was kind of, you know, I don't know if I could say lucky because it's not, but, you know, someone said the other day, like, why didn't you talk about the zeitgeist of the Me Too? And it's like, well, first of all, this is not about that. Second of all, I wrote it like a decade before Me Too yeah. or started it. And thirdly, you know, I think that trying to fit that movement or trying to fit what women don't want into what women do want, I think is really hazardous. And I think it's like we can talk about what we don't want over here and we should be able to talk about what we do want over here. But kind of cinching the two together, I think sort of demeans both. Yeah, I get you. And the book, obviously, Three Women, is very much about sexual power and sexual agency. And women haven't been allowed either mm-hmm. for so, so long. Totally. And any sexual energy or power or agency we have is still very much seen through the eye of the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah totally. I learned that, you know, that is very much, it, it's very much that. It's funny because there's millennials, right? You know, there's something about younger women in their early 20s that they don't want to believe in the aspect of biology and the history of patriarchy. They don't, not that they don't want to believe it, but they, they want to ignore it because saying that it exists means that they don't have a certain element of power. And I don't think acknowledging its existence is, you know, ceding your power. I think it's just like having a full-throated understanding of what's going on, not only in the world, but in your own, in the way your biology works, you know. And that goes for straight women, gay women, gay men. There's People don't want to acknowledge the things that are difficult. They don't want to acknowledge the things that, you know, and you can say there's people who have nothing. They're like like the woman that, dropped out she I mean she had stuff happen to her which is why she acted a certain way but there are people who who maintain sexual power at all times there are women who don't care about how they look when they're having sex there are all these exceptions to the rule I wasn't trying to make a rule you know I wanted to explore desire I wanted to explore the fact that we hold it to our chest and we don't talk about it real desire not just like I want to fuck that guy or I want to fuck that girl that's easy to say yeah you know, and, and you can say that and you can hide behind the power of, of saying that you're allowed to say that. And that's great. But to actually talk about what the the root of, of something that you actually care about is, I think is a lot harder. And that's why I think finding these people was nearly impossible. 
And talking about that route is impossible. And like I said before, I wouldn't, I don't think I would do it. I think it's totally frightening. And I think that, you know, for Maggie, who's now a social worker and doing really excellently. Oh, that is really yeah, good no, to hear. Yeah, no, it's great. That's amazing. And she wants, you know, I think one of the main reasons she talked to me in the end, at first she just wanted, you know, to her story to be heard. And then I think it gradually shifted to wanting other young people who might go through a similar situation or even the same situation because it's happening in North Dakota like every week there's a new scandal like this um which is I don't know why but it seems or maybe I'm just attuned to it because of you know but I think she wanted people to have a guidebook for how to act and I think that the only way sometimes through the pain is to think that it'll be useful to either someone else or to you in the future yeah and I think it also ties into that thing that if you if you notice something about yourself or about your sex and mm-hmm. your gender, then if it's bad, part of you thinks, shit, I should be talking about this, I should yeah. be doing something about it. But women in real life and certainly in pop culture that mm-hmm. surrounds us, if they do embrace their sexuality, if they do embrace that energy, they are punished. Mm-hmm. There's a certain line that you're allowed and then past that line, totally. you are punished. Totally. And it feels like... These women, even Lena, who is within three women, she is the one who is grasping hold of it. She's almost giddy in this self-discovery, mm-hmm. which is so joyful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, she's punished for it mm-hmm. by the way people look at mm-hmm. her and talk about her. Mm-hmm. Totally. With that in mind, how close do you think we are to achieving mm-hmm. sexual parity? Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have answers to what? I know I'm sorry <laughs> I, I don't you know I wish that I did the things that I learned were that we are all so similar in wanting to hide in, and in what we want and the fear that we have of being discovered I also think we all want to be seen and heard I think that judging other women is not going to get us to where we need to go and I think that that happens in so many different ways. I think it's largely jealousy or largely our own shame projected onto others. Shame hot. Yeah. Which is a <laughs> word that I really like, shame hot. I but, felt like that shame hot and you're like, yeah. wow, you immediately, your face is on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I've, I've made a note about the way women view other women, which is obviously very visible in three women, but also just, again, in real life because mm-hmm. you've documented real life. And that feels internalized misogyny we've been told this yes, is the role that women that's play exactly true yes <sighs> and we look at other you know we like sloan who's really beautiful and by all accounts everybody thinks she's gorgeous it says it in the book but that she said that if when you're having a threesome the main rule for her is that the other woman cannot be more beautiful she can be nearly as beautiful but she cannot be more and you know that's i had a friend in college who would not go to a party unless she was the prettiest girl in the wow. room so i think we've been told that's our value yeah yes exactly and and that's and it actually you know and biologically it's our it's our value to yeah. an extent you know it's like you know it's changed to different things but it was still like you know the biggest breasts the largest milk givers you know that's something that the nicest tail feathers yes exactly yeah exactly it's the whole it's the whole thing and that's that's mutated and it's changed over the years and sometimes it's like you know five foot ten models and other times it's like you know just giant booties (laughs) i didn't know how best to say but in another country i don't know how to say but you know it's just it changes and morphs men have been allowed through centuries to want women who are beautiful when women say that they want men who are 
beautiful. These incels have said, have called them chads, you know, like that's, have you heard that? It's like a very strange thing. And the women who want chads are like these terrible whores. And just really shallow. Yeah, they're shallow women, but it's the same thing. That whole concept with incels that women owe men sex. Yeah, sex is nuts. But I feel like we all, like the women in my life who are incredible, strong, independent, fierce women... There's a little bit of that in all of us because it's what we've been told. Totally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I always feel, and I've said this a couple of times, that I've thought about this for the last decade easily, that I've sat on airplanes with men. I've sat on trains with men. I've sat in cars with men. And I have talked to them, even if I didn't want to, because otherwise his ego is going to be hurt. So one final question is going to be maybe a tricky one, but... Has it changed the way you feel about yourself? It's brought up a lot of things in me, specifically Lena's story. I was the most aligned with Lena's. I felt like, you know, a lot of people called her pathetic, and I was always fighting against that, mainly because I've been pathetic, terribly pathetic. I think other people have been pathetic. I think no matter how strong you are, you can be pathetic, men, women, etc. Like, I've learned not to do certain things, but also I've learned that I would probably do them again. I guess I've learned that you never are done learning, but that's a silly thing to say that applies to anything, but I think it really applies to sex and desire. Three Women is available in all good bookshops. (laughs) Yes. Where can we find you, Lisa, if people want to find you on that their internet highway? Um, Oh, gosh, I just started this because I kind of had to, but on Twitter, I'm Lisa D. Tadeo, and on Instagram... I think I'm the same thing. <laughs> but yes, I, I literally just started it and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll post pictures of my daughter and then like the Daily Mail did like something about me. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And like they took a picture off my Instagram of my kid. And I was like, what? Oh, that's the Daily Mail I know, it's crazy. I was like, what? first of all, why does anybody care about what I'm doing? Second of all, why'd you take a fucking picture of my kid? Anyway, not take a picture of one, but just lift one. I was just like, oh my God, it was very strange. But anyway, so that happened. Well, I wish they weren't the ginormous pricks that they are, but no, there's nothing fine. we seem no, to be able I, to do about I, that. I know. Thank you so, so much for coming to chat Thank to me. Thank you for having me, Mickey. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hey, Hannah, what are you doing on Sunday, the 21st of July? I am going to be in the fair city of Canterbury. Canterbury? I know, all the way in Kent. We will be holding an in-conversation event at the Marlowe Theatre as part of Canterbury Comedy Festival, and we have some great guests. Too right we do. We've got Kima Bob, and we've got the Scummy Mummies. If you want to find out more, go to our website, www.standardissuepodcast.com. And we can promise you that you may well laugh your tits off. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, we are here in the studio, and by we, there's me, there's Mick. Hello. And there's Jen. Hello. And there's also Marika McKennell. Hello. Hello. Writer and poet, whose new play, E8, opens up at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival at the end of the month. Yes. This is about your experiences in a in pupil referral units. So probably the best way to start is if you could explain to us what a pupil referral unit is and how you ended up working in one. It's a provision for excluded young people. 
The school that I worked at, it's actually an alternative provision. So our referrals come from other pupil referral units. So if a child gets excluded from a PRU, then they'll come to us as the kind of end of the line provision. This is like the red button kind of level of PRU. Yeah, if we if we exclude them, there's not a lot of options. I worked there for six years and it's in Dalston. So I was really interested in hip-hop education. I had this like really naive thought when I was um, a student of like, oh, I'm going to get rap in schools. Like, that's going to be my calling. I'm going to get rap in schools. Is and that then, the Michelle Pfeiffer? It's dangerous minds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I hadn't seen that film, but yeah. And then I did a bit of research and realised that people have been doing this for years. So, <laughs> <laughs> Dumb it! Just yeah. like a while ago now. That's, yeah. that's the 90s. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. So I got in touch with them and... One lovely guy was like, yeah, I'm like trying to set up this thing. It's going to be amazing. And I, I, at the moment, I do like workshops in schools with kind of students that have been identified as at risk. So I started working with him and we'd go into schools and do like rap workshops. And then he was like, I also work a couple of days a week at this other school. Do you want to come and be a TA? So I was like, yeah, cool. Sounds good. So I did that. And um, when I started, there were four students in the school. So it was like tiny, like we'd all eat lunch together around the table. It was like such a such a beautiful atmosphere, chaotic in many ways, but really lovely. And I just stayed there and the school kept getting bigger and bigger and moved buildings and got more staff. And eventually it was taking on 25 referrals, which when you've got 25 big personalities, it felt like a lot. <laughs> Is there an average child? Sadly, it is what you'd expect. It's young Caribbean, Afro, African and Caribbean boys. Who are notoriously failed by the education system in this Absolutely. country. Absolutely. And what kind of behaviour would get a kid sent to a PRU? Well, this is the thing. It's, it's completely varied. So some records, you look at it and you think, this is a perfect example of institutional racism basically you see a profile and then the reasons they've been excluded are low level stuff it's like being a bit chatty being a bit of the class clown just really maybe getting in like one or two kind of altercations really low level behavioral stuff but within particularly an academy system that's deemed as completely inappropriate so they get rid of them but then other kids it's pretty major stuff, maybe stabbing a teacher, maybe. Some of our referrals are through court orders or if they have to have moved borough. So maybe they've been gang affiliated in South London, then they have to move to East London for their own safety or moving foster care or a variety of reasons. How do they respond to you? I had quite a good rapport with a lot of the students. Obviously, there's going to be a few that just take a disliking to you and... Because you are authority. Well, that's that's the thing, is we kind of... Obviously, that is we are authority in one sense, but we really try and break down that barrier as much as possible. So there's no uniform. You know, the teachers don't really have a dress code. We'll try and meet them on their level. So at least when I started the, the initial philosophy, it's really, really strongly about attachment theory. So we'll try and be that place that they can it's a safe space that they can kick back it's like they can shout swear do whatever to us and we'll just be like but we still care for you we still love you and we're still here turning up every day 
to like be there for you. And after maybe three years, sometimes that sinks in a little bit. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like a a perfect storm of absolutely knackering, but ultimately rewarding. Yeah, not explicitly rewarding. (laughs) (laughs) Do you see a lot of success stories or are a lot of the cases, you know, a lot of the people that coming through, is it sadly a case of no, not really? I think when it was a smaller school, it, it was easier to see some successes. So out of that original cohort, one graduated college, which was amazing. And then a couple are now in jobs or kind of seem quite functional, which is really, really re- rewarding to see that. But a lot of them, it, it yeah, it's pretty bleak, to be honest. The damage has sort of already been done. The damage has been done. It's too little, too late. Like there's so, we're up against every other influence in their life. So it is really difficult. I read something when I was researching this that said that, that last year there was a, a education select committee that basically said pupil referral units are run like, not specifically <clears throat> individually run, but the system is run, they actually said specifically, like the Wild West, in that lots of schools actually, in order to improve their ratings or their league tables, mm-hmm. actually just bump children that mm-hmm. are problematic or have low grades. Do you think then they get trapped in a system do children who go into pupil referral systems ever go back into real education? Not um, real education, conventional education. A few do, and a lot of them really want to go back into education. And they're, you know, they come in every day and it's like, I want to be a mainstream, I want to be a mainstream. And a few of them do, most of them don't. It's, it is really difficult to get back into mainstream school after you've been excluded. The ones that have tended to go back into mainstream have been the ones that are there for unbelievably ridiculously silly reasons. Like we had one kid who was so well behaved and he he'd drawn he'd graffitied on the board when the teacher left the room and he was instantly kicked out and sent to a pro. Sent to sent to our pro. Yeah. Outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. That's incredible. So he, yeah. But also, then do you get a system whereby you have people who are in there for sort of genuinely serious reasons and they are th- kind of like the prison system I suppose for serious reasons and genuinely should be there and then you've got a lot of people who probably really don't need to be there but are there are they then getting influenced by absolutely that's that's what happens and it's really scary and it we feel awful because we're like trying to protect certain kids from other influences but yeah that is that's that's one of the the problems with it and then also you have the other mix because so you've got the like behavioral stuff but then you've got the special educational needs Mm. side as well so for a time there was just a really like quite hilarious mix actually of people that would never have mixed in in school in society like they would just not be in the same room together of essentially like quite like geeky kids with some SEN stuff and then some like gang members just like <laughs> in a class together which was kind of kind of cool in a way they got to like did you see time. friendships form that surprised you was it like a, a cop buddy movie yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> do you know what some sometimes there were a few like hilarious little friendships that you'd be like ah oh, unlikely unlikely powers i saw that i saw that sly fist fist touch that they're really gonna nice. stop a crime at some point yeah <laughs> the media are like sort of banging on about it a lot at the moment sort of epidemic of violence and stabbing across London, um, which we know is sort of 
been going on forever and ever, but it does look like it's a bit more serious at the moment. I don't know if you have any insight on how big a problem that is within young people, or I guess particularly young disadvantaged people in London. Yeah, it's a massive, it's a massive problem, and it's um, it's yeah, it's just very, very upsetting because we can see what the problem is. It's austerity, and it's cutting, it's cutting housing, and it's cutting education, and it's cutting services for young people, and the outcome is this. And I think it upsets me so much because if it wasn't young black and brown kids if it was like white middle class children we would there would be so much done about it we'd have you know instant action and um kind of resources being pumped into that and instead we just were left to deal with it within the community and we you know underfunded lack of of structural organization there often yeah it's just an it's just absolutely tragic it's 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 almost too big a problem to actually do anything structural about if your structure is inherently that you don't want to give people money, isn't it? So I guess yeah. like sticking a few more coppers out there. Oh no, really... it's not helpful at all. Yeah. Not helpful at all. Like it just it just further like the whole stop and search thing. It's just obviously sometimes we need stop and search without a doubt, but on the whole, it just furthers a really bad relationship between young people and the police and and fosters a. a kind of a sense of distrust and it's just so unfair when half the population have a police service and half the population get a police force mm. yeah. that is you know not fair so yeah. can we talk <laughs> e8 what, what story are you trying to tell in that it's a slice of life really it's like a kind of view in that world so it's over real time the main character who is waiting for a decision um to be made about her life and they're that yeah they're just kind of waiting for that to happen like waiting for godot but more bleak but with women. and hoods yeah but with women yeah <laughs> more bleak than waiting for godot yeah <laughs> that's not that's not accurate that's not longer accurate pauses thing, no. yeah. <laughs> more boring no not more jokes more jokes more fun <laughs> and where can people see that it's on at the pleasant's queen dome queen's dome queen dome queen dome, queen dome. Queen dome. Yes. that's it at 4.10 for the whole Fringe, all of August, 4.10pm. Are you excited about going up to Edinburgh? I'm very excited. Are you going to yeah. be there for the whole run? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I've just had a baby, so I've got a little... Congratulations. Thank you. I've got a little one that will be coming up. Um, yeah. I reckon there are a lot of houses which have got comedians and various artists in throughout the Edinburgh Fringe that are a lot like Prue. Yeah. <laughs> I reckon. Probably, you know, a bit wild. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in, Morika. It's been really interesting. Thanks for having and me. And good luck Thank up in Edinburgh. So hey there, you lot. If you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media, and why wouldn't you, because you're only human, you can! We're on Twitter as a team, at Standard Issue UK, or individually on at Inspiragen, at that Dunleavy and at Mixter Noonan and I'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who. We're on Facebook as well at Standard Issue Magazine and even Instagram at Standard Issue Podcast. Come to us, look at our faces. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome.
welcome to Jenny Off the Blocks, that time of the week where we launch a rapid breakaway from the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. First up, congratulations Team USA for winning the Women's World Cup, commiserations England for finishing fourth, and that is uh, all I have to say about that. Moving swiftly on to Wimbledon, where there is a new girl in town, and that girl is Corey Coco Goff, at 15 years and 110 days old. She was the youngest player of the open era to reach the Wimbledon main draw through qualifying and she fought her way to the fourth round of the tournament in spectacular style over the last week where she did unfortunately ultimately lose to Simona Hallett but you know fair enough Simona Hallett's performer number one pretty good so she is now out of the tournament but very very exciting one to watch in the US Open coming up at the end of August and beginning of September. So look forward, to, hopefully, to seeing more of her there. Now, by the time you listen to this, you will know if Joe Conta and Serena Williams managed to progress beyond the quarterfinals. And we do have to give a little shout-out to Serena as well, who is in the dreamiest of teams with Andy Murray in the mixed doubles, which is just, like, basically all of the good things in the world. All of them. I'm very excited to see what happens next in the tournament, especially in the women's side of the draw. Who knows? knows what will happen and obviously we are always hoping that Serena will get that 24th Grand Slam and take that record finally. Now I'm not going to bang on any further because for this week's main event you might be aware there is another big sporting spectacle taking place at the moment but not for the birds. Mm, 2019 controversial. And I am, of course, talking about the Tour de France. As that got going last weekend, I had a chat to badass cyclist Caroline Fulmer about Donon Dazelle Ovello. I am so sorry for that pronunciation, like classic French. About the women who are taking on their very own tour. Enjoy. I'm joined on the phone by Caroline Fulmer, a cycling enthusiast and a member of Donon Dazel Ovello. Caroline, first of all, thanks for joining us. And can you explain to us what you guys are doing? The uh, Donon Dazel Ovello group is a group of women who will be cycling the course of the Tour de France one day ahead of the uh, men, the professional cyclists, to raise awareness. Mm-hmm. to the fact that there is currently not a female stage rates in France and also to encourage more gender equality in cycling. The Tour de France obviously is a huge, huge big deal. So it goes yeah. on for three weeks, but there is no female equivalent at the moment. So there used to be, didn't there? But a sort of scaled down version of it until the 80s. And now there's exactly, just... Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Until 1989, there was a kind of like a prelude to the men's race which was the women's race and after that uh, that stopped so you guys you just you just crack on and do it yourselves with presumably very little support that's correct we're all amateur cyclists we all have day jobs so i for example work as a consultant at bain and company and we still do the same three and a half thousand kilometers just to to show people and make people aware that there is not such a race. As amateurs, you're able to do that race. If you imagine if professionals, you know, people whose full-time jobs was to cycle, it seems crazy because there seems to be some sort of argument about women not having the stamina for the Tour de France, but clearly that's Mm -hmm. completely wrong. I mean, you're you're proof that that is not the case. No, exactly. And I also think if you look at the the female professional peloton, which is a completely different level than 
that we are at. They're all great races and they deserve the same attention as their male counterparts on television and in the media. I would say in the UK at the moment, women's sport is definitely on the rise. We've obviously, it's a sad day for me because as an England supporter, we uh, mm-hmm. we left the Women's World Cup yesterday. Uh, we're so, we're, I'm still hopeful as a Dutch person that will make the finals. The football is pretty big here. I was actually in France last week and I went to watch one of the games and I was kind of surprised by, I mean, admittedly, I was in Nice, which is uh, maybe a bit of a different vibe to other parts of France. But I was kind of surprised by the lack of interest, to be honest. What's your sort of experience of the growth of women's sport in Europe? Do you think it is getting more traction, more media coverage? I think it's definitely on the rise, especially in cycling here in the Netherlands. You now see that we have some very good cyclists and yeah. therefore there is more media attention. But I think there's also still a lot to be gained by uh, making sure there are sufficient role models. So, for example, I was at the start of Trois Ballons, which is a cycling sportif in France three weeks ago. And out of the, like, I think it was about like 1,200 or more participants, there were 70 women. So that is just a very skewed kind of gender sample. And mm. I do think... In, for example, marathon running, you now see more and more that there's more women participating. But in cycling, we're not there yet. And somehow, for many women I speak to, there is still some kind of of threshold or border where they just don't jump on that bike. I think you're right. You have to, if young girls could see that on the TV and watch it, then that would be a huge source of inspiration to them. No, exactly. And I think it's, I mean, if you would now have to explain to to a little girl sitting on the couch why there is not such a race for women. I think that's just a very difficult case to make. By the time this podcast goes out, it, you will have started... Yeah, so we're starting on Friday because it's okay. the men who start on Saturday. So we mm-hmm. start one day ahead of them. And how many of you are there? So we are 13 women who are part of the Donon de Zello Velo team. Mm-hmm. And then there is another 10 women who are part of the Internationalist team, which is a more international team, who will be riding along with us. And then on top of that, there's about there's up to 80 people each day who just join us for a one day, basically, just oh, to wow. show their support. So if anyone is in France cycling, they could find you the day before they- each men's stage, basically. You'll be doing the same exactly. stage the day before. So if anyone wanted yeah. to sort of rock up and join you, they'd be yeah, welcome they to do go, so. They can go to our Facebook page and there they'll see both where we are, mm-hmm. with also with the GPS location as well as a way to pre-register if they would want to join us for the full day or part of the day. And what's the Facebook page called? It's Don Desalo Velo, which is difficult to remember, of course. <laughs> <laughs> D- difficult for English people, oh, possibly. But <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not known for exactly. our language skills. <laughs> How many times have you done this? This is going to be my first time. It's your first time? Wow. So have you been yeah. doing crazy amounts of training? Yeah. No, I think uh, I, I've known that, I was do- that I'll be doing this since January. Mm-hmm. So I've been putting in quite a few kilometers since then. Mm-hmm. I think I got to about 6,000 uh, this year. Wow. But, uh, of course, like, it's nothing compared to uh, how the professionals would prepare for such a race because I still have my full-time job yeah. as well. I actually once cycled, not the entire way across the US, but I cycled from Cape mm-hmm. Cod to Texas. And, that is really cool. And it gets, it gets like, I'm warning you, Caroline, the state of, I'll say your bum, it's, yeah. it's a difficult time basically <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I thought 
I would never recover. But I did, so don't worry. Um, that's, good, that's good to know. Good to know, sure. What do you think will be the hardest aspect of it for you? The hardest might actually be somewhere in the first week where you're already very tired and you just know that there is a lot of mountain stages still to come. God, yeah. And it just seems like you still have another two and a half, two weeks left. Whereas I feel that once you actually get to the mountains, then you're actually already halfway. So that's probably, I'm ho- hoping. How many miles or kilometres are you doing per day? Mostly somewhere between, let's say, 180 and 210 kilometres. Uh, depends a bit on the uh, on the profile of the day, sure. of course. When there's mountains, normally it's a little shorter. Although there is one day in the mountains, which is 200 plus kilometres. Oh my gosh, oh my <laughs> gosh. That is so awesome and inspiring. Other than your Facebook page, is there anywhere else on social media we can follow your progress? You can also follow us on our Instagram page, which is the same no. also as the team, Don the Dolo Velo. And then, of course, most of us are also uh, on Strava for those uh, really interested mm. in the numbers. Yeah, the cycling geeks. Um, I'm on Strava, exactly. obviously. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us and best of luck. And like, Thank you know, you. what an incredible, incredible thing to do. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of a future hell did I make us watch this week that wasn't quite what was specified? (laughs) This week we watched 1991's Terminator 2. Judgment Day. Yeah, which is obviously the follow-up to the original Terminator film. So Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Cameron, Linda Hamilton and uh, young Edward Furlong playing the young John Connor. Yep. Set in 1994, which is actually three years ahead of when it was made, leading up to when the world was going to end in 1997, which obviously it didn't. We got a Labour government, so actually it was a slight improvement (laughs) on what they thought. But there is a a future in it, which is 2029. The only thing we really see about that future is that the world is on fire. So, you know, maybe we are heading. Maybe they're, they're, they're spot on. Yeah. I usually ask you, when are we? But you've you've told us it's 1994. In, I think, Los Angeles, I think, I don't know. I guessed Los Angeles, but I don't think it actually tells us, does it? I don't think it does. It's a place where they have vats of hot metal at the end of a motorway, so wherever that is. Guildford. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, I'd never seen this. I had seen the first one, and I have to say, my problem with the first one... I'm jittery, wanting to know what you think of... My problem with the first one is that I don't understand time travel. And I don't mean I don't understand it because I'm too fucking stupid. Because I've had people explain it to me. It just doesn't make sense. And so I didn't bother with any Terminators because the first Terminator doesn't make sense. Why doesn't it make sense? Because he, the man came back from the future and yeah. impregnated her. Yeah. He did. Right. Uh-huh. So how did she get pregnant the first time? Because it had already happened. Well, how can it have already happened? Because it happens like in perpetuity forever and ever and ever like a photo within a photo within a photo you mean like time is a flat circle i don't fucking know hannah um tbh uh you've sort of blown my mind a bit to be honest i feel a bit uncomfortable now just one question and jen's gone to bits see this is it nobody can answer this question you're our time travel expert jen why did you say you would be happy to ask answer any questions so, yeah, so I haven't bothered watching the second one. But I have seen it now. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Arnold Schwarzenegger arrives back from the future. 
entirely naked goes into a biker bar you almost see the nearly see the back of the balls back of the balls i did worry that they will come in uh but they don't place to be it it really reminds me of uh you've played that game where you put your birthday and florida man in to google and you find your florida man story my florida man story is please search for florida man who walked naked into a restaurant and stole shrimp from the all-you-can-eat buffet. And I thought, perhaps he'd come from the future. My Florida man story is, Florida man walks into a restaurant and asks for your clothes, your boots and your motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Now, here's a question. Would you rather be naked or wear some other man's leather trousers? Uh, um, I think I'd, I'd rather be yeah, fully nude. Fully nude. I'd Winnie the Pooh it t-shirt yeah. and then naked. <laughs> Maybe a formal shoe. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm crying. <laughs> so Arnie's been sent back because he's a good guy in this one now because he was a bad guy the first time. He's been sent back from the future to save John Connor because also sent back is a much more wizardly advanced robot who is played by Robert Patrick. Who I always think of as from The Sopranos now, but uh, yeah, clearly not his main role. This is his main role. Yeah. Yeah, he's trying to protect him because he's trying to kill him and he chases him for two and a half very, very long hours. You didn't like it, Hannah, I'm guessing. I thought that if I'd watched it at the time, I might have had my mind blown by the special effects, but they haven't dated particularly no. well. Oh, that, that first one where someone literally just draws a circle on the screen <laughs> that Robert Patrick can climb out of. Yeah, oh, but it's it's such a good film. It's kind of not. Okay. It's kind of not. I mean, we can talk about why it's not a good film. Sarah Connor, who's been in a mental asylum, because... because she know, claims to have been impregnated by someone from the future. I know, so... And haunted by a Terminator. Yeah. Yeah. She has got the worst fringe for running away from anyone. It's terrible hair, isn't it? It's not great. I mean, it's just in her eyes. You would just tie it back. You wouldn't, you'd just tie that fringe back. You would, there's no way you would make a fashion choice to have that fringe while she being She doesn't trapped. have time. She's running. No, she doesn't. I don't think Edward Furlong acts particularly well. I don't think it's a particularly good, we could talk I, about good child performances, but this isn't one of them. I don't think anyone in it is that gifted on the old acting situation. No, but Patrick's great. I think he's really good. He plays that cool, kind of detached, he's very minimal movements. I think he plays a psycho robot very well. Yeah, okay, I might agree with that. I mean, Arnie's obviously Arnie, so there's no point even talking about it. It's very unsubtle, isn't it? Like, because it's got that voiceover. The point of a a a voiceover shouldn't be to explain the plot to you, and yeah, it kind of does here. There's a bit where she says, oh, of all the men that could have been a father to him, you know, it was a robot that did it. And I thought... If this film was better, you'd just get that. You wouldn't need someone to explain it to you. So that gets on my nerves. However, there are some amazing bits in it where extras have obviously tried to get lines in it because you get paid if you get lines. Or you get paid more money if you get lines. And there seems to be a number of great examples of that, including a guy who's shot by a canister that lets gas out, falls on the floor and goes, oh, God, it hurts, which made me <laughs> laugh for about 20 minutes. And another bit where they're, where they're duffing up those two guys in the car park. And I can't think what he says because he says something that's very 90s, like let's split or something. And But it might as well be let's sling our rooks. You know, it's just so ridiculous the amount of extra 
dialogue there is in this for people who don't really need dialogue. I mean, and in fairness, some of the script, and I will admit this despite being a big Terminator 2 fan, it's as clunky as the initial Terminator. It's it's very like, book, like, oh, she's going to blow you away. Yeah. <laughs> Your foster parents are dead. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's talk about Linda Hamilton. You know, Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor. Because I can't quite make up my mind whether she's a feminist action hero or she's not. And there's a moment in this where she actually has a little bit of a rant. She has a proper like second wave feminism sentence, let's call it that. But she's talking about a whole sentence (laughs) where she's talking about how men just destroy stuff because women create stuff, you know, and maybe it's because women create life the men feel the need to destroy it in a kind of yin yang oh, way interesting Sarah and yeah it is interesting and then do you know what happens she gets told to shut up and she goes alright and she Good does point. yeah so I think it was the start I think Sarah Connor was very much the start of women being allowed to have action roles so whether her character is actually a feminist I think it brought in some more kind of built women women who looked like they were strong mm, she's hench she is hench but I think G.I. Jane was around that sort of time um, as well. And it became... Aliens as well, around that sort of era. Oh, no, Aliens is earlier. Aliens, aliens is in late 70s. No, that's no. Alien. The second one is early 80s, though. OK. I'm fairly sure it's... It's also James Cameron. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so James Cameron isn't scared of a strong female lead. Got to salute him for that. I don't want to. I don't like him. Anyway... No, I've, I've heard bad things myself. Well, tell me why I should have enjoyed it then, guys. It's quite a good fun, isn't it? It's, it's a, fun a fun film. No, because it's not shit enough to be fun. It's quite shit. Yeah, it's shit, but not in a fun way. I can't, apart from, oh God, it hurts. I don't know. And I apart mean, from the liquid nitrogen smashing into a, what is the name of those things? Where people melt metal. Foundry. Okay. A foundry. It's it's helped you rediscover the word foundry. I have very fond memories of it because I grew up with two older brothers and do you remember when it took like nine years for anything to get to VHS? Yeah. So they were probably about 15 and 13 or 14 and 12 when it came out and we used to watch it like basically every fucking day for a year. So I have like very fond memories of it. I probably shouldn't really have been watching it at that age it's well. definitely a nostalgia fest but yeah. i've got to say what is good about it and it 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 does look dated of course it does but i still think when you were first watching that mm. and you saw robert patrick's terminator the, the second the terminator, shapeshifter the shape the is he a t1000 or whatever oh. then when he shapeshifts when he melts when he hooks onto the back of the car using that was like properly yeah. mind-blowing when he's on the phone and he's he's got the bloke on the end of his finger sword <laughs> then that was probably I don't know but it is I think I look back on it and it's just totally nostalgia and being a kid and watching something that was probably a bit too old for me and Arnie's adorable why does he insist that he's lowered very slowly into the fire rather than jumping in or being pushed in dramatic yeah, license fucking Martin, you must he? lower me very slowly <laughs> <laughs> I don't really understand though um Maybe it got explained at some point. I have watched this film like a squillion billion times. Is it who was his dad the first time? No, I don't. So Arnie in the first one wants to kill him. Why didn't he want to kill him anymore? Has he been like rebooted? Yeah, he's been rebooted by John Connor now, see, in the future. does bring some time travel questions up, doesn't it? How? 
Why didn't someone then just go and... You've ruined it for me, haven't you? have ruined time travel for me. There you go. See, I don't... Sorry if anyone else is listening, I've ruined it for them. It's why I, don't, I don't understand time travel. Technology-wise, are we nearly there yet? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Because time mean, travel could come in handy, guys. I mean, yeah. I'm currently at home watching Stranger Things. and uh, I know, because I went back in time to the future to send <laughs> you home. Was there a Cassandra moment? No. No. no it wasn't was there, let's face it. Don't give too much intelligence to robots, guys. We need to heed this. Do you have an Alexa? No. no it doesn't listen to me. Oh, yeah, it's racist against Northerners, It's isn't racist it? against Northerners. And a bit sexist. Mm. What score are we giving it? How many Arnies? Um, Arnies, as in Governor of California, is it a good film? I'm going to say three because I think it probably was a good film yes. at some point and I just missed the boat. If I could travel back in time and watch it in <laughs> 1991, maybe I'd be really impressed with Maybe it. one day you can, Hannah. That's something to look will, forward yeah. to, isn't it? Maybe I'll get pregnant by someone and then we can answer the question of, no, that wouldn't work, would it? And then you'll start to fade in a photograph. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting it confused. And how many, I'll be back. Yeah, it's getting a full fat zero for that. Oh, okay, maybe one for the fact the world's on fire. Okay. I mean, in fairness, it's it's not necessarily the dystopian-type film that we're supposed to choose. But I did get to watch Terminator 2 again, so that was fun. Lovely stuff. It was lovely. What should we watch next week? Maybe we could watch an Arnie dystopia and watch Total Recall. Should we watch Minority Report? Break up Tom the Arnie a bit. Let's watch Rollerball. Decision made. Next week we're watching Rollerball. Thank you. Everybody, unbutton your shirts to the waist. James Kahn style, which is weird because I'm wearing no trousers yet. I'm <laughs> just a formal shoe. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.